welcome to Feminists Without Mistake, a podcast where we process politics, sex, and the unrelenting fire hose of bullshit in the news through an unapologetically feminist lens. Each week we begin by venting about the news, go deep on one important issue, call out terrible things happening below the top headlines in a segment called We See You, and then we end with something hopeful. Similar to last year, we're working with the Miami Book Fair and interviewing a slate of fantastic authors um, who've written really interesting books. Um, the Miami Book Fair is uh, considered to be the largest literary event in the nation, and it celebrates scribes and their prose. This multi-day event features a festival of authors where 450 writers read and discuss their work, and there are e- an Evenings With series where well-known authors from the U.S. and around the world engage in post-reading Q&A sessions. The street fair portion of the literary affair gives attendees the opportunity to purchase rare books, foreign prints, comics and original manuscripts, or get autographs and autographed materials. The Children's Alley offers classes in specific genres, as well as theatrical performances and educational games. Special cooking demonstrations called the Twilight Tastings and the Kitchen feature complimentary cocktails and culinary creations. Today, we are lucky enough to speak with Rabia Chaudhry. Rabia is the New York Times bestselling author of A Non-Story, and we're going to talk to her about her new book, Fatty Fatty Boom Boom, a memoir of food, fat, and family, which was such a delight to read, um, So we're and we had a great conversation, so I can't wait for you guys to hear it. Um, Rabia Chaudhry is an attorney, advocate, and author of the New York Times bestselling book, A Non-Story, and she's executive producer of a four-part HBO documentary series, The Case Against Anand Sayed. Rabia is also a co-producer and co-host of the podcast, The 45th, The Hidden Gin, Nighty Night, and Undisclosed. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Rabia, thank you so much for being on Feminists Without Mystique. We're so, so happy to have you. And we both really, really enjoyed your book. So very excited to discuss. Thank you for having me. Um, I am intrigued, by the way, with your um, the name of your show. I love it so much. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> that was actually Aaron. Aaron came up with that title. That was all right. That's yeah. a good one. Many, many moons ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who are we kidding here? <laughs> First of all, just congratulations on the recent news too. I mean, there's the release of your book, but also the vacating of Anansayed's um, yeah. sentence is huge. Um, congratulations. Thank you. That that was a much more important release, I got to say, um, <laughs> in the circumstances, but the timing couldn't have been better, frankly. Um, it, it was just, it was amazing. I mean, long time coming, 23 years in the making. So we're just so happy he's home. Yeah, but I mean, I... I think we both we both listened to Serial in 2014, I think, when it came out and have kind of known and been following the case and, and you and uh, the, just everything um, kind of involved there since. And uh, so glad that he's out and also really enjoyed. I think you posted on your Twitter. Um, <laughs> he was reading the book um, and totally not staged. <laughs> not staged. It was so funny because he's like, oh, he came over and he, this is like about a week or so after he was released and he came over. And um, he's like, Rabia, like, I'm down to do whatever it is. He's like, I know, because he he was actually concerned that all the, the stuff happening in his case was interrupting my book promotion work. I said, Adnan, that's not so important. Don't worry about it. But he's like, I'll take a picture. So I took a couple and he's like, okay, now take me like this. Now take me like this. And he just kept, I said, okay, he just kept going. It was so much fun. Yeah, but he's a ham. He's, he's a lot of fun. That's, that's so fun. Um, 
after finishing reading this book, Aaron and I were just talking before you jumped on that we feel like we know you so well and like we have to be like, she doesn't know us. You know, we're not like- You haven't read our books. You haven't, you know, we're not (laughs) best friends. (laughs) But I feel such a kinship and a warmth. And like after reading the book, I guess I kind of just wanted to start off with just being like, how are you? Like, it feels like there should be another chapter to your memoir, like an epilogue for the epilogue. Like, how are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Since I wrote that, that epilogue in the Faha, um, I'm, I'm doing okay. You know, it's been a, it's been quite a season. It's like, like these last few months have been a lot of ups, a lot of downs and um, the pandemic pretty much threw off a lot of, you know, what I was doing, like, you know, spending time in the gym and like that kind of self-care, right? Like I had started, um, I had started uh, legitimizing my monthly massages by saying, but I'm working out so hard. I get to have them. And so that all went out the window. Um, and then my, my dad had a really severe, um, he's had a couple of strokes and a lot of health issues last couple of years during the pandemic. And so uh, he's in hospice care in my home now. So like between that and the excitement of the book and it's just like a roller coaster, but like a lot of working moms, you just take it a day at a time and uh, you know, and wake up the next day and start over. I'm sorry to hear that about your dad. No, I appreciate it. Thanks. He's, I mean, he's, he's doing okay. He's actually doing better than he was when he was in the hospital and in rehab. And I think being surrounded by, you know, your family makes a big difference. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, And I, like you referenced earlier, I, like many others first came to know about you from um, your work with Adnan Syed. And of course you wrote his story. When and how did you realize that you wanted to write a book about your own experiences? And as I think we've already said, we both really loved the book. <laughs> yeah, this was, this was not a book that I ever, anticip- ever anticipated writing about because, you know, I, I've done a ton of public facing writing. I've written a lot of op-eds. I used to have a column for Time Magazine. Like I've done a lot of that kind of stuff over the years talking about issues that I work on and, and have been an advocate for. So this is something so deeply private. But when my agent floated the idea of writing a memoir, and I realized there's so many ways you can write one, like what thread should I use to connect this book, right? Is it like the, the advocacy work? Is it like the post 9-11 stuff? Like what should it be about? I realized I've talked a lot about all, all those stories, um, but this is one story I haven't really shared. And in my private uh, relationships with all my friends, everybody who knows me, like this is all we ever talk about. <laughs> it's all we ever talk about. You know, I don't sit around with my closest friends talking about civil rights. We talk about like, oh my gosh, I can't get into my pants. You know what I mean? Like that's what we talk about. And I had been asked actually years ago to write about this, um, the subject of, of weight and body image and, and all this stuff years ago for this magazine online. And I said, oh no, I could never reveal myself like that. I couldn't. So there was a point at which I couldn't. And by the time I got to um, to actually considering this a few years ago, I realized I had reached the point where I emotionally and psychologically was able to do it. I really connected and felt like I got to know you through the through this like this connective thread. I mean, I've struggled with my weight since adolescence, um, mm-hmm. and just I, I connected not just with the story, but the way you tell the story, like because the story of my life has also been the story of my weight. Um, yeah. And I feel like, you know, and I, I did Weight Watchers starting when I was 15. Oh, boy. Okay. <laughs> um, and I remember kind of like I connected with sometimes the moments where you like gave the exact weight, you know, yeah. like I feel like I have been able to map my weight like a historian. It's crazy how you remember those things, right? Like those are these landmarks that like are embedded in your memory. And and for me to remember exactly like, you know, now as an adult, I'm like, man, that had a real impact on me that I know exactly how much I weighed at every point in my life. 
Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. I mean, and I think that I was just talking to a friend about this and I, I've talked to my mom a couple of times and it does feel like when I convey the depth to which this is like embedded in my every single day and like there's always a part of my brain, like the pie chart, there's always a part, at least a significant part that's yeah. concentrated on this, what the number is, how I feel in my pants, are my yeah. legs rubbing together? Is that picture yeah. looking horrendous? Yeah. Um, I, I was wondering like, you know, cause, and so the authenticity of that just was like, Oh, I mean my heart just reading this whole thing. Yeah. Um, when did you become aware? Or have you always kind of been aware that your life, like the story of your life and the way that you see it is inextricably linked with the story of your weight? I became aware very early on that for others, that my identity, my value, all of that had a lot to do with how I looked at my weight. Like I realized that early on about other, that other people looked at me like that people around my family, you know, like it was their biggest concern. They never asked me how my grades are doing. <laughs> they never asked me like, there was never any concern about anything but that. Like, I mean, I really can't remember any other thing that really concerned them other than this issue. But I didn't really internalize that. I think until probably my first marriage. And around that time when I was like, you know, 19, 20, 21, and you're in college and suddenly like you become hyper aware of the dating scene and boys and like, you know, and also there's like suddenly this hovering pressure of, is she ever going to get married? She needs to get married. Got to find the right guy. Like literally like there's like a, in South Asian communities, if it doesn't happen by 25, you may as well call it in. Um, (laughs) And so that's when I really started to internalize it. And I started believing that this is what defines me. And this is how I have part of how I have to value myself. So I have a baby daughter and I'm already anxious about when she inevitably develops insecurities and how as her mother, I can help her to feel confident and feel empowered, even though I didn't until arguably now. (laughs) Um, (laughs) How have you talked to your daughters about body image, about their relationships with food? How has your own experience informed that? You know, um, I don't think I've ever had, I've had some direct conversations, but not so much to them about like, this is what, what you should do or how, you know, more about like, you know, where I am in my life. And, you know, my eldest is 25. And then I have a third, I have a, she just turned 14, 14 year old. So when I had my eldest, I was a different person. I mean, when she was a toddler, I was a different person than I was when I had my, my second 10 years later, I, my eating habits were different. My life was different. My anxieties were different. And what I realized is that, you know, everything I modeled like is reflected in my daughters as they grow, they both have very different kind of eating habits. And, but those habits reflect actually where I was in my life. So it all comes down to kind of like modeling that behavior. So more than talking about it. And, you know, there was a point at which my uh, now 14 year old, a couple of years ago started like, you know, and, and she's tiny. She's this tiny little flit of a girl. Um, like I was like, you're, you're never eating. Like I, I would watch her eat and it would be like almost nothing. And I realized, oh no, like that's the age we're hitting, right? The 12, 13 years. I started taking her to the gym with me and, um, and getting her into weight training and getting her into like thinking of like taking of her body in a different way. And that actually completely changed her relationship with food because then she, and now she's running cross country. So now she eats to fuel herself and she's eating like, you know, really good, wholesome food and lots of calories because she needs it to actually move her body. But that wouldn't have happened if I wasn't in that stage of my life. So I think more than even the conversation, they're just going to watch what you do and they're going to do it. 
All right. right. So I need to do better. <laughs> Noted. <laughs> oh my gosh. I haven't Unless quite... you're already doing great. Maybe you are. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Pretty... We'll go with, we'll go with that. Yeah. No, you are Erin. You are. She, Erin does, um, has been so consistent. Like she found, I mean, I think I'm so jealous because you found something that really works for you. Um, bar exercises. Well, and tough um, girls now it's like a weight training, weightlifting, oh. um, gym. Yeah. I've been deadlifting. Oh. Listen, yeah. I, I, I keep saying that if I could become an evangelical for strength training, especially for women, I would do it, it as like a full-time job. It is really transformative. And it's so, I mean, I'm like, you know, 48 years old. So especially at this point in my life, you know, thinking about things like bone dex- density and flexibility and muscle mass, you know, those like, that's, that's what's going to determine how mobile I am like 20 years from now. So it's, it's so important for women. Yeah, definitely. And there, there have been studies that show that weightlifting specifically and strength training for women helps women deal with trauma and oh, yeah. which I definitely relate to like yeah. feeling good in your body and feeling strong helps feeling you guys really kind of, yeah, reclaim something. So it's not quite a runner's high, but it's got, it's got its own, like there's a whole other high system there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I've never been good. a runner. I used to walk the mile in high school. So <laughs> <laughs> Oh, all right. Well, you guys are getting me um, inspired because I have been dragging my feet to rejoin Orange Theory because that's really worked for me, that system, okay. like kind of the running and the strength. Anyway, yeah. digression, but uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, the the vulnerability in your book, I think I'm, we might have already said this, but it just was so touching kind of at times it was aching and like I just was like so with you every step of your journey. And I loved the note that that you kind of ended on. I'm wondering, like, how did, how have your family and friends been kind of receiving this book? I don't know if anybody in my family reads at all. Um, so <laughs> I'm safe there. The only person in my family who would have read this book really is my father, but since his recent stroke, he's not able to read. Um, my mother read like the first 10 pages or so. And, and ever since then, she never picked it up again. She keeps calling it that book you wrote about me because <laughs> You know, the first 10 pages are about her and my dad. And um, and really, there aren't really any big readers of my family. So I honestly don't know if anybody will read it, frankly. But um, in terms of my friends and stuff, I don't know. Because, you know, the book is not quite out in the world yet. Um, some of them did get advanced copies. And um, I, other than a couple of folks who said, you know, there's a lot. In the, I'll tell you this. As I was writing it, there were people very close to me who said, Robbie, don't don't talk about this. Don't talk about that. Don't expose yourself so much. Don't make yourself vulnerable. And so there are people who know what's in the book and are nervous about it for me, but they know that I, I was like, if I don't, if I don't include the whole story, then I feel like I'm lying to my reader. So uh, whether, whether it's about the gastric sleeve, the gastric sleeve or, or exactly how much I waited at every, any given, like, I feel like my husband's going to read this and, uh, he, he has no idea how much I weigh because in 18 years, I've never told him. Um, so, mm, wow. so, you know, but I'm like, if I'm going to do this right, I got to do it right. I got to put it all out there. So, I mean, I, I just have to say, and this is just one perspective. I feel like all the details were so, that's part of what kept me so glued to the story and how it was such a, it was a, a quick and very, very easy, digestible, no pun intended, um, read. And I think, keeping all of those really like difficult details in is what is going to connect with so many people. Um, I hope so. I mean, and I I honestly, I envisioned the reader being someone like me, someone who has a woman who has lived for decades, feeling judged, judging herself, struggling in all of this, 
not having a good relationship with food, not allowing herself to love food, all of that. I, I imagined myself to be the reader. And so um, if that's the kind of person, you know, then I, I want them, that person to know all I've learned through, <laughs> through all I've gone through. And maybe some of it will help somebody. And, and, you know, maybe not for a lot of people. This is not a prescriptive book. It's not a, a book to teach people how to do anything one way or the other, but it's just my journey. But I certainly have learned a lot myself by, by trying and failing many, many things. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think just for humans to hear and relate to another human's story yeah. is therapeutic in and of itself. Um, yeah. So we appreciate the vulnerability. Yeah. Um, and speaking on that, I feel like so often as humans, we have at least at least one toxic relationship, one where you're attempting to... Just one? <laughs> at least. <laughs> at least. Greater than or equal to. Yeah. Uh, one where, as you describe it, you're attempting to build a foundation on rubble. How did your relationship with your ex-husband prepare you for a healthy and loving um, partnership later on? I don't know if it necessarily did other than the fact that it put me on alert. What, one of the things I realized was like before we were married, he would tell me about the fact that his father was abusive to his mother, physically abusive and how hard it was for him and his siblings and how devastating it was for them to feel helpless. And, you know, a lot of women, young women are very empathetic and they, in a situation like that, they don't understand like how that kind of trauma and abuse is generational and cyclical unless somebody gets like, real professional help and there's some real intervention there. I didn't know that. So I will say that since that time I was on the lookout, you know, to make sure that like, I'm not saying you reject people who come from traumatic backgrounds, but you got to make sure like, has this person gotten the help and put in the work to make sure you're not repeating these things. That certainly, I mean, I see, and, and you meet a lot of people who don't. And so they'll tell you these, you know, awful stories that they grew up in all. And all I can think is please get, please get professional help, right? Like, break the cycle. Um, so that's one way it did. But, you know, also I went on right after law school, I spent a good part of my immigration practice early on was actually representing um, immigrant women who were victims of domestic violence. And I don't know if I could have done that as effectively if I hadn't lived it, if I hadn't understood why a woman won't leave, you know, it's so easy when you've never experienced to say, why did you just go? just go. Right. Like, and I wasn't even an immigrant woman who didn't know the language and didn't have her papers. I, you know, so that experience for me, I get it now. I understand like the kind of how people feel trapped in abusive situations. Cause I I never thought in my life that I would be, cause I never saw it growing up. Yeah. Oh, that was, that was so heartbreaking. And I mean, even, even prior to the domestic abuse that you described, the realization that you when you were in the kitchen and just realizing like, oh, I'm, you know, this is what's expected of me now. Just like the kind of that, that, uh, that like cold truth sinking in, I was really feeling. Especially very, very early on, like within the first few days of that marriage. Yeah. It's just awful. And at, you know, at the age, like still in college and trying to figure out what, yeah, I was, um, that was, that was just so hard to, hard to see. Um, yeah. and, I mean, and frankly, you know, I think about whether or not I would have ended up in that marriage if I didn't have such, you know, such a low, if my family didn't have such low expectations from me, right? Um, if they, if I wasn't already primed with this idea that nobody's going to marry you. So, oh my God, yeah. this guy wants to, you got to jump at it. Um, I really do think if I had been given the message that you're worthy and you deserve like the best and you know what I mean? Like, then I, yeah. I might not have jumped at that chance. 
Yeah. You know, I, I thought about that. Um, and I've, I've thought back on moments where I felt my least, um, secure and I can think about exactly how many pounds I weighed and like how clothes were fitting. There were so many moments early on in my teenage and early adult years where I feel like I had lo- those, you know, those low expectations, not to speak for you, Aaron, but I think like lots of my friends and I, you know, you get negative reinforcement. And then if there's someone who's even like giving you attention, the positive attention, yeah. um, you just let so much slide because of kind of wanting that to work and wanting like the connection and the whatever's kind of c- coming your way in terms of a positive validation, especially when it comes to your looks. Um, so it, it often feels like the people that find themselves when there's a, a, um, a toxic relationship that happens, it feels like it could happen to anyone, just a matter of like who you're interact, who, who collides with you at what moment. Oh, yeah. Timing is a lot of it. Yeah. Your vulnerability in that moment is a lot of it. Definitely. Yeah. Um, but one thing I was wondering that maybe like um, maybe your mom, <laughs> maybe she stopped reading when, when with the anecdote about the milk, the two bottles of half and half a day. My jaw was on the floor. <laughs> I know. I mean, I'm still carrying around that half and half. I can get <laughs> But, you know, I mean, I was kind of like the cards were stacked, you know, the deck was stacked against me. Like I, I was set up to doom on this issue, right? Like when you, when you are pumping a little baby full of that much fat, you're setting them up for a lifelong struggle of like, you know, trying to maintain or trying to lose any of that fat. You don't, you don't lose fat cells after a certain age, you know, like you're stuck with them forever. Um, And that's just science. And so Yeah. And then years later, when um, I learned that Auntie Sheila was like, I didn't say two bottles. I said a couple of tablespoons in her bottle or, you know, and I was like, what? (laughs) How epic of a miscommunication or misunderstanding, right? Like, yeah. The sticks of butter. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. I still love butter though. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) if there's butter or garlic or certain seasonings involved, I'm game, you know? So you are somebody who's accomplished a lot in life. You're the kind of person that seems um, like a total force of nature who can do anything they set their mind to. And I was struck by the moments in the book where you reference being overwhelmed to the point of tears, yet you push through. Um, One example is when you went to that CrossFit class and everyone was in their little shorts and their lean bodies and you're sitting in your car looking at this and instead of driving home, you go in. When yeah. you're in moments like that, what drives you, what motivates you to go and do the thing, the hard thing, rather than get back in the car, turn around and drive home? You know, what I've learned uh, in my therapeutic journey is that there are different personalities. Some people are avoidant and some people are not. I'm not an avoidant personality. I uh, am that person when I, like, I just kind of, I don't, uh, it's not even like a choice I make. I just, I'm like, I have to go headlong into this to get to the other side. I just want to get to the other side of it. And that's the only thing that drives me. And I don't function well by avoiding things or looking away or, you know, I, I want to see everything with my full eyes and experience it, all of it, the good, the bad, and then get on the other side of it. Um, and that's just how I'm built. So I, I don't know, you know, necessarily it's not a choice I make, but I, given that, you know, on the outside, it does seem like, oh my gosh. I mean, and that's another reason I wrote this book is because it does look very easy. It does look on the outside like, oh my gosh, she accomplished this and this and this and this and mm-hmm. she can. But the truth is, like, I was like, this is one thing that I have 
continuously failed at for four decades, you know, like it's a battle that I have, I cannot win. I ha it has defeated me no matter how many times I've tried and how many ways I've tried and no accomplishment, no external co accomplishment made up for it. Frankly, it just didn't because on a very personal level, I mean, I still got to like lie in bed with my body and every single time, three times a day, should I eat three times a day? Should I snack eight times a day? Like, I don't even, I was at a point where I don't even know how to eat anymore, <laughs> you know, like, and we need to eat to live. It's been hard to even um, enjoy like achievements and accomplishments when you're constantly personally, personally feeling like a failure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I feel that. I feel that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, not to like keep bringing it back to my own part, but I earlier today I got a text um, that my my um, gown from my from my bridal my bridal gown is um, ready to try on, <laughs> um, and I was like, ah! um, <laughs> I was thinking like you know it's one of those things that's been stressing me out for months. Like when is it going to be ready? Do I weigh the same? Have I fluctuated? I feel like I have. It's been a stressful couple months and it's just in the like every day as like a, a like a low drum beat it's like you've got to lose that weight to get back <laughs> the know? bridal gowns should all be like half dance so we don't have to worry about it just like nice and loose and moo moos um the funny yeah. thing is like, you know it kind of never ends i bought an outfit this really beautiful outfit um for my launch event you know and chelsea clinton will be hosting my launch event this is kind of a big deal whoa and i, and I get it and i am <laughs> i put it on and i'm like the zipper is almost up, but it's not. I'm like, I got to lose five pounds to get into this outfit. And I'm like, this is hilarious. And actually uh, is is on brand for me and like my wishful thinking. In the past, I would have probably taken drastic measures to just, you know, do it, but I didn't. And I, and I, my, my, you know, I, I'm like, I'll have an alternative outfit. It's fine. You know, and it's, I'm just like, it's fine. So it's good to be on that side of it instead of panicked and be like, I have to, have to, have to. And if I don't, I'm a failure. Yes. Oh my yeah. gosh. That's such a healthier perspective. Just go, you know what? I'm yeah. not, this is not, um, I had a friend once reference a closet recently, my closet and say like, oh, we have a bunch of mean girl outfits in there. They're just there <laughs> to make you feel bad about yourself. Like why? Uh, yeah. <laughs> So it's good to just be like, you know what? I this this clothing isn't serving me right now. Like, imagine yeah. if we all just could just take that and go. I'm just gonna wear something else that I feel I mean, better. That, in. that pantsuit shouldn't make me feel bad. It's a piece of fabric. Right. <laughs> it's an inanimate object. <laughs> right? Oh my god! Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And look, I got married. I got married my second wedding, and you know this. My second marriage with like my blouse busted open. So look, it's <laughs> all good. It's all good. Oh yeah. my God. I know that. I thought about that too. Like Aaron was at my, the dress fitting from July and they, the woman who was fitting, like showing me dresses, first dress she picked was a size like zero. I mean, it was like so many sizes below me that she had to put a huge piece of fabric to cover all of the gaping hole because it couldn't zip. And my mom and Aaron were just like, I know I was feeling like, like a really bad sales strategy, doesn't it? Like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like, get a bigger dress and put the little clippies yeah. on it. Yeah. You know, like, I feel like an ogre. Great. Um, first dress. Uh, <laughs> but, like, to, to Aaron's, um, kind of as a follow-up to Aaron's questions, because because you've reached this healthy stasis, um, and as you put it, kind of, no more depravity, no more deprivation. I deserve the joy of food, but I deserve not to harm myself with it. Like, what advice would you give to uh, listeners, ahem, ahem, me, <laughs> um, <laughs> who, like, are kind of stuck on what feels like this never-ending hamster wheel, like, 
I know some things in theory that I should do, but like it feels like really getting to a place of acceptance and kind of being like, every this is fine. Um, moderation, like any advice? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I'll say one of the things that I've learned, and actually writing this book kind of helped me reach that point as well too. But to be honest, maybe four or five years ago when I did like start to start strength training and focus on feeling stronger versus looking a certain way or, you know, what I realized was that the self-loathing comes from being told over and over again, you're doing what you don't have the discipline to do this. This is a deep failure within you. It's a character flaw within you. We know what's how society views like people who, who they don't think are like the right body, the right body shape or the right weight. First of all, I don't care about like, I mean, like the number on the scale means literally nothing because you can have two people who weigh 160 pounds and have completely different bodies. One can be all muscle and one can be like no muscle and they'll look like completely different bodies. So the numbers, like don't wed yourself to the numbers. The BMI is bullshit. That The BMI chart is mm-hmm. absolute bullshit. Um, but have grace with yourself and, and don't like stop blaming yourself. Honestly, the world blames us. There are so many factors that go into like, I mean, I, you know, my younger sister has always been very thin. So there's always been like, it's us two sisters. So I'm like, that's the pretty one. I'm the smart one. Like that's how it's been divvied up. And, (laughs) and for her, she can't understand the weight struggle because she's like, it's just calories and calories out, but it's not because everybody's calories out are different. My hormones are different. My thyroid system is different. My metabolism is different. What I, what my body was fed as a child. And even now with processed foods is different. And so stop punishing yourself uh, and saying that, like, you know, if I can't get to a, like, you know, that this is not a discipline problem for most people. For a lot of people, it's environmental things. It's like, it's actually health issues um, that, you know, that, you know they, they have to learn to unpack. Um, so I think just learning to forgive yourself and understanding really the mechanics of like weight and weight gain and weight loss and all the different hormones that like, you know, and insulin spikes and things that nobody taught me in all these years, right? Like, Mm-hmm. Uh, are really important. I also don't believe, um, I don't believe in element elimination diets. If you, if you want to do something, unless you think you can do it for the rest of your life, don't do it like that. That's going to be a failure and it's going to be bad for you. That's a diet, right? And, mm-hmm. and diets are supposed to be limited for like a few weeks or a few months that by design is, um, is gonna, you're going to bounce back and you're going to bounce up worse. Mm-hmm. So, you got to do something that you're like, it's sustainable. Like, you know, I eat carbs, I eat ice cream. I just don't do it constantly all day. I, you know, I just, you know, have a little bit, but I, I eat very little processed food now. Like my palate's just turned off by it. I don't like it anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and prioritize your health. I mean, like be, to be strong, prioritize being strong. Do you feel strong or not? Ask yourself that question. If you don't feel strong, then try to figure out how to feel strong. And I, there's something about like when I started doing circuit training and I had been running, I ran five miles a day for a while. I was doing cardio, like two and a half hours a day and feeling depleted. Mm-hmm. But with strength training, I never felt depleted. And suddenly like my whole diet kind of conformed. I was like, I need to eat a bunch of dates and nuts so I can get through like the weight. Tra- <laughs> like I just wanted it. <laughs> Give me some boiled eggs. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so I don't know. That's a whole bunch of, it's not advice so much, but it's, I mean, it's, it's all kinds of, sorry, like maybe, no. much, but no, um, I love it. Yeah. Just don't stop blaming yourself. Honestly, we are given terrible information, terrible food and, um, really unfair expectations. Thank you. <laughs> 
I think that's great advice. And the idea of do you feel strong? And if not, how can you feel strong? Um, really, really resonates. And I don't know when they're going to do away with BMI. I feel like it's not an actual metric of anything at this point. And I don't know why um, doctors still even calculate it. Honestly, it doesn't make any any real sense. Um, but on to the next. <laughs> uh, your descriptions of fast food as well as homemade food both um, made by mouthwater. They're both described with love, both complicated in their own ways. Um, I actually, so I read your book with my free time over the course of a few days. And by the end of it, I was like, I need to order Malai Kofta or I will die. <laughs> <laughs> like I was just, I kept reading it when I was hungry and feeling like, yeah. all right, I gotta, <laughs> yeah. I gotta do it. Um, and Maria was saying that she was looking up spice grinders. Uh, do you have any specific meals that you're particularly enjoying at the moment? Like anything that is, is hitting it and, uh, um, to be honest, the last few months have been like I'm survival mode um, yeah. between everything happening in the family and then Adnan's thing and the and work, you know, um, the book stuff is not work. <laughs> There's actual work work. Um, so it's been kind of survival mode. So what I've done is like um, I, I always prefer home cooked food to, over everything. Mm-hmm. So I found this lovely lady not too far from me who is like a, an, an older Pakistani lady who makes little beautiful home cooked meals and, you know, just little does a little home catering. Um, and once a week I pick up some food from her, then once or twice a week I'll cook something and then we got leftovers and then maybe we get takeout ones, you know, and that's it. But for me, um, I have a lot of travel coming up for the book tour and I'll tell you this, there's never a time that I travel that I don't want to come home to the same meal and it's always steamed white rice and dal. I always want my dal and my rice. Like that's my comfort food when I come home. Um, so yeah, that's what I'll be eating when I get back from, from, the terrible tour food. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I know. I noticed you're in Seattle on the 17th, so I'm going to try and see if I can pop by. Where Maria oh, is. Are you okay. Yeah. Wait, are, you was... both, are you both there? In I'm Seattle? in, I'm in Connecticut now. I was in, <laughs> okay. yeah, okay. I was in <laughs> Seattle, but now I'm here. Um, but your launch is in New York with Chelsea Clinton, right? On November 8th. Yes. I peaked yeah. that. I was like, it's not so far. But you mentioned your book. You were in Connecticut at one point. You don't want to come back? And do a little- <laughs> Listen, I, yeah, I've had people say, come to Connecticut. and Have you? Um, <laughs> at this point, you know, I'm at the mercy of, you know, the, the mm-hmm. publisher and where they're going to send me. And so it's that's kind of it. I would love to. I feel like I almost need like a, a different parallel um, tour for all the cities I'm not getting, like, you know, Houston and, and Atlanta and so many other places where people are like, what do you mean you're not coming here? Toronto. <laughs> I'm getting so many requests from Toronto. But um, yeah, Connecticut somehow sadly gets overlooked. <laughs> very, very tragic. Where, out of curiosity, where in Connecticut were you? We were right outside of West Hartford. And um, okay. the truth is, I loved Connecticut. I I cried when I looked. I loved it so much because I'm kind of a small, small town girl. Like I like mm. country living and stuff. But also, there was this amazing like community of friends I had made there, um, and I just didn't want to leave. One of the kind of last questions, and you can take this kind of wherever wherever you want. I I was wanting to hear just a little bit more about your relationship to the word fat. I mean, the, the title of the book is Fatty Fatty Boom Boom. Yeah. And, you know, there's, we've talked on our podcast a lot about, you know, we've actually, we're just grappling with the, the parsing terms like body positivity, body neutrality. It feels like Aaron and my perspectives evolve kind of on that, but it feels like there are so many cultural flashpoints where people have very strong opinions. Like people on the internet, I just love to talk about, you know, Amy Schumer, when I feel pretty came out or Adele's weight loss or anytime Lizzo does anything. And like most recently last week was um, 
a kerfuffle, which I wasn't sure if you'd heard of, like with um, Taylor Swift's new video um, for Antihero. Um, where I heard, she, I heard about it that she gets on a scale and it says fat or something like that. Yeah. yeah. And like Aaron and I were, we were talking about this um, earlier. Like we both kind of disagree. There's criticism that that's like fat phobic and harmful. And, you know, Aaron and I were really, it's like, you know, I, I really want to honor like what people are saying. I was reading the think pieces and the threads yeah. and I just ended up, you know, I just disagree ultimately that that's harmful considering we're yeah. all using the word fat. So well, yeah. when I, when I, when I read about that particular, uh, you know, this, whatever, social media, a cancel movement <laughs> over that. I mean, if I had seen that video and I saw that scene, what I'm, a man, what I'm, the way I would have understood it is that that's how so many people, when they get on the scale, that's what they see, no matter the number, that's what they see. Right. That's like literally like how, like our relationship to like what's on the scale in front of us, right? Like it's rare for somebody to get on a scale and be like, that's amazing. I am awesome. I am so skinny. Like who does that? The skinniest people I know have days when they're like, I feel fat. I am fat. You know what I mean? And I, and you know, to me, fat is relative and fat is also good. It keeps us alive. You know, it nourishes my babies. You know, it, yeah. I, I don't have a problem with the word fat. And I know, um, I think, but I think everybody's entitled to their opinion. And I think our relationship with, with words as well, really, uh, it depends on how they were used against us, you know, how they've hurt us. Right. Like, so I won't, um, you know, I, I am a little, you know, I, I know there might be some concern about like, about like, you know, is this book, what is this book really in like, basically, is it a bo body positivity book? Is it a, is a book on weight loss? Why am I telling people I got weight loss surgery? Why am I even concerned about this? Why even write about this? Because even writing about the issue is like, you know, fat phobic, right? Um, I don't know the answer to any of that. All I know is this is my story and that's all I can tell. And it's as simple as that. And um, I am in awe of anybody who can say, I have an amazing relationship with my body and I'm really happy how I am. I mean, that's nirvana, man. Like people are seeking that. Monks are in the mountains <laughs> looking for that. Yeah. So <laughs> if, if you are there, I don't care what you look, I mean, that's, you've done it. You've made it. Yeah. But for those of us who haven't, it's like, come on, you can't make me feel bad um, for, for being a size 14. And, and you also can't make me bad for not wanting to be a size 14. You can't have it both ways, right? Like, so at the end of the day, you got to put aside the noise and just like the conversation for me is only just going to be with me. Yeah, exactly. I love I that. Think it yeah. is a, because I think Marina have grappled with how do we have honest conversations around it without using rhetoric that people find to be harmful because, you know, Taylor Swift objectively by any metric is not overweight, but she's been open that she's has body dysmorphia when she looks at this, yeah. you know, and that is her experience. And it's ultimately a personal experience for everyone. So, you know, I don't know how to, I don't know what my question is, but yeah, I don't know how to, <laughs> how, to quite, how to quite separate it out sometimes. Yeah. I, I just think yeah. it's really odd to tell somebody, no, you shouldn't feel the way you feel that the way you feel is not legitimate. Your experience is not legitimate. Right. I don't understand. Like we don't do that on other issues, but on this issue, people want to feel, feel very entitled to say, well, you've internalized your fat hatred. And so now you need therapy for that. And you're just poisoning the world with, with <laughs> wanting to, you know, your, your fitness routine on Instagram. I mean, I, I, I don't understand that. So, yeah, I agree. Erin, are there any um, any other questions you want to make sure we no, ask? I mean, I just I cried about what were their names, Bill oh. and Bonnie. Bonnie and Bill. Yeah, and then the bunnies and my <laughs> literally tears. <laughs> 
of these stories oh, of these animals. That was, but... a, that was the same the same uncle who decades later took me to the shrine and cut yeah. in front of all the poor people. <laughs> yeah. Um, no. I, my uncles are just yeah, crazy. I was like, no, no, no. <laughs> Too funny. Well, and my um, my grandfather uh, was a first generation immigrant from Hungary, and he actually killed and served my mother and her siblings their pet duck for dinner one night. Oh no! Did yeah, and she was. They knew, and my mom went on like a hunger strike after that, and it was a whole thing. Um, yeah. I'm a vegetarian; it might be related. I don't know, but I <laughs> I read that. And was just like, oh my god. Yeah, but you know, like you know, first world sen- uh, sentimentalities about pets are like that's just not understandable to other um, cultures because yeah. they're like, it's just food. What do you mean yeah. you love it? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It is so like you know, it is kind of arbitrary what animals we decide are. 100%, yeah, you yeah. know. Totally but, yeah. but when it's your little pet buddies, oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> the carnage. Oh my heart. Yeah, I still have not gotten the courage. Maybe the next time I see him, he's in Pakistan, I'll be like, can you tell me how you did it? Because they were massive. And I, I don't even understand how he could have. Although they'd never moved. So maybe it was just like uh, one clean cut and it was over. I don't know. Uh, Sorry. Terrible like, way to end. You can cut that out. Oh, <laughs> you know what? I'm going to think of them languishing in the sun, like you would say. They were lounging. They had loungy yeah. days. I'm just going to think been, of two lounging. They yeah. fell asleep. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, Rabia, thank you so much for taking the time. And thanks for sure. writing this book. Seriously, it has been, it was such a joy to read. And um, thank you so much. I just, I'm going to be following along and hopefully we'll come say hi to you in Seattle. But like, yeah, thanks. Thank you for this book. It's really well, I really appreciate it. I know people are going to have a lot of feels about it, but I hope they're mostly good feels. So. I think they <laughs> I think will be. So. <laughs> Thank you, guys. You have a good night. You Thank too. You, you too. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Rabia Chaudhry. For more information on the Miami Book Fair, you can go to miamibookfair.com. For more on Rabia Chaudhry and her work, you can go to rabiachaudhry.com. That's R-A-B-I-A-C-H-A-U-D-R-Y.com. Feminist Without Mystique is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.